0: going on little dick lover
1: <laughs> hey listen man it's 2022 if i love dicks or not it's no big deal
0: Yep. no i'm proud of you <laughs> yeah for your love of little dicks not little
1: i mean i like my own i guess that's kind of little but um but, you know externally i'm actually a, i'm a size queen when it comes oh are to, you when it comes to the men that i you allow my, into your supple body my, my carnal remunerations yeah <laughs>
0: yep. uh so I'm, what, when
1: i'm when i'm picking a new bull <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh so what's going on everybody uh so cam is currently in seclusion uh and he is recording from his phone so we apologize for uh yeah. any uh video or uh sorry audio <laughs> quality issues but I have my normal yeah, setup. Yeah, our video so.
1: quality should be just as good as normal.
0: Yeah, the video quality, yep, the, the noted video quality of the Left on Red podcast. Yeah, should still should be good. Top tier, yep.
1: Also, in addition to my probably uh, not ideal sound quality is that uh, <laughs> my voice is completely fucked up from, like, allergies, so... yeah, uh, You know, whatever. I'm gonna sound... Luckily, I'm not leading this episode, so I think we should be fine.
0: Yes, we should be fine, yep. Yeah, And uh, it will also be the full, uh, the first full episode of Left Unread that I have to edit. So, yeah, it yeah. should be good. It'll be our best sounding one yet.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think secretly, it, Evan thinks that this was all planned. Uh, but <laughs> His no, dastardly
0: I, master plan.
1: Yeah, but not the case. I'm happy to share the workload, though. I, I don't mind. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how you do. I'm sure you'll do great.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Right. Thank I, you. I appreciate the vote of confidence.
1: Yeah. You can you can pick your own music without having to run it through me and yep. uh, have me you know veto things and yeah you know
0: yeah you are known to do that.
1: Also, I don't know if, if anybody's picked up on this, but I uh, every week I subtly pitch shift Evan's voice just a little higher, <laughs> uh, and it's sort of like a, a frog in boiling water situation yeah. where he won't notice it's it's a problem until he sounds like a chipmunk. Yeah, and uh, and that's really that's my my long game. Yeah, uh,
0: yeah, to make me sound weird. Like, yeah.
1: No. Well, I didn't say that because I don't have to do anything for that to be okay. No, I, you're I, jealous
0: of the, the of the timbre of my voice. Just admit it.
1: Well, right now I sound like a <laughs> sexy lounge singer. So uh, for the <laughs> moment, I'm good.
0: Maybe not sexy, but lounge I, singer. I, sure. I definitely, I like, definitely a lounge singer in a smoke filled room with a uh, velvet seating.
1: I smell like Mace- I smell like I smell, I smell like. like- <laughs> <Ray>. <laughs> I, I doubt different.
0: you smell like that. No, oh.
1: no, she probably smells way better than me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, welcome everybody.
0: Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Do you have a? Uh, do you have any any banter? I'm not sure. Um, I got a pretty long episode, so I guess we can try to keep it short. But
1: yeah, I, I was I was gonna say I know this is gonna be a long one. Um, y- you know, I might have had a couple things, but if I think of them, I'll just pepper them in. Okay. I should have written them down, but yeah. um, at the moment, I'm running blanks.
0: Oh, I'm actually... Shooting, I, right
1: now, I'm shooting blanks, so.
0: You're shooting blanks. Oh, so I do have one. I just saw this today, uh, you know, because I, I'm a a sick individual that just really likes to keep up on politics that make me angry.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I saw... Nancy Pelosi, I'm not even sure what the fucking, uh, she's just always going on about Ronald Reagan, which is a very funny thing to do during pride month, but, (laughs) um, she, uh, she said something was, it might come as a surprise to some of you that the president I quote most often is president Reagan. I don't think that comes as a surprise to anybody. No. And, and she told the crowd, the good humor of our president was really a tonic for the nation, the gentleman that he was. And I saw that. I was like, "Really? What good humor was that? Was that when he used to laugh uh, about gay men dying of AIDS during uh, press releases and stuff?"
1: Hey, listen. Hey, don't don't knock the Gipper. Okay, <laughs> because he was he was uh, a man of uh, substance and principle. Yeah, <laughs> and I think. Quoting him is worthy. The
0: substance being jelly-like, as, yeah, as in what his crazy. brain was during this a, a leaky, gray matter. Yeah, his leaky see. pudding brain. <laughs>
1: uh, oh, man. I will, yeah.
0: you know, if I could say one nice thing about President Reagan, it's I really like his portrayal in Wasteland 3.
1: I was just going to say the same exact thing. Yeah. As a, just a giant death robot, like, worshipped yeah. by a cult. Of, and yeah. all the women are married to the it. The
0: Gippers, <laughs> Yeah.
1: <laughs> um yeah, that was, that, yeah case, that was funny uh there so one other thing that i thought of speaking of nancy pelosi i wanted we, it sort of happened at a weird interval but uh yeah. her husband got a dui yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, or arrested and charged with with oui or whatever yeah, yeah And i just i loved her response uh she like just put out a press yeah. release and was just like I was on the other side of the country. I don't know anything about yeah, it. She'd so yeah, she just throw
0: him under the bus.
1: Yeah, like, and fire fair enough, right? Yeah,
0: she's like, yeah, I don't know what that lush was doing.
1: Yeah, no, whatever. <laughs> I haven't, I, we haven't slept in the same bed in 27 years. I'm not, <laughs> yeah. Not putting uh, my neck out for that old sack of bones. Yeah, um, yeah, that was hysterical. On more somber, on more somber note, uh, then I don't actually want to talk more about it because we did a lot on the last episode. Yep. But there have been, I think, 32 mass shootings since Uvalde. And uh, I just think it's worth putting that out there because uh, that shit was like a couple weeks ago. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Cool. I don't know. Just a Good. horrifying figure. That I USA.
0: USA. USA. <laughs> <laughs> We're in number one. We're in number <laughs> yeah. one. Uh, yeah. And, yeah yeah we're doing that's great
1: just dealing with our horror through humor don't think that we yeah. take that show lightly um yeah. And then, yeah i don't know there was something else oh uh the last thing i wanted to say so we obviously did our episode last week where i kind of talked about some hokey uh martial artists just because that's something i'm fascinated by mm-hmm. um and i was thinking at the time like oh i would really love to do like a whole episode on steven seagal uh but i just realized that much more famous and established history podcast. The dollop, uh, actually did a massive three parter, uh, back in April. Um, and it's like, it's really good. Um, so not to have to listen to it, but yeah, just a recommendation. If you, if you were interested in last week's episode, um, they also, uh, and this, I did know, but they also did a full length episode on, um, count Dante
0: uh, a
1: while ago, years ago. Um, which is good, but the Seagal, like, he is such a... Sh- just a he is
0: such a, like, a, a massive piece of shit.
1: Well, he's a horrible dude. Yeah. Right? Um, huge misogynist, uh, cultural appropriator, sexual deviant. Uh, not deviant. We don't say that anymore, right? Because I'm not kink-shaming. He's... Uh, no, no, no.
0: Bring kink-shaming back. No, no. We have we stopped kink-shaming <laughs> well, and look what happened what to the world.
1: Is, in my mind, kink- like a kink can be like a good thing but if your kink is like physically assaulting women like that's a, we'll shame that kink all day
0: i'll I'll shame every kink no we got to bring shame back
1: that's fair we sh- what you want to establish a more puritan society
0: yeah i i think we need we need a censor a such as augustus <laughs> you know regulating what what's okay to to do and what's uh what's going to be ridiculed in the public square
1: right whoa is my battery dying what the fuck
0: you better not do okay. that
1: no, we'll try to avoid that, folks. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, you're right. Absolutely. I think we we maybe we should consider that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's it for me, though. Let's, okay. Because uh, is this? Well, I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah. So I'll just let you do your little intro, and then I'll ask my question.
0: All right. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess let's first um, start the show, and this yeah. is where I'll put the intro music, right?
1: Yeah. Here. Usually we do it. There, no. no yeah.
0: Right here.
1: Yeah. The, right, yeah, right
0: here. Right here. okay great welcome back from the intro everybody Uh, (laughs) yeah so um this is finally i now the the last episode of my mega series american utopia which has uh was started literally i think last july uh has spanned five episodes and i believe something like eight it'll be like eight total hours yeah um
1: yeah that sounds about right
0: yep some of our most downloaded episodes uh and, uh, generally, um, I don't know, I've had a lot of fun doing it, even though it's been, like, just terrible things non-stop yeah. through it. And guess what? Today, we're going to get into some of the worst.
1: <laughs> I like it. Yeah. I like this series a lot, and, uh, you yeah. know, especially this episode, you really poured yourself into it and took a long time working on it, so I'm excited. Yeah.
0: yeah, I got to a point where I was, like, halfway through it, and I realized it didn't really flow well, and then I yeah. stopped, and then I had to, like, kind of rework it, and, Uh, Add some more stuff. I ended up adding a huge part about the Godfather, so we'll talk about that. Um, Like the
1: movie? Yeah. Like the making of it?
0: No, no, the Godfather part two. Well, I guess kind of the making of it, but um, it'll make sense when we get there. But basically, the way I'm looking at it, you know, we have this main series, American Utopia, and then we've got some episodes that are like companion ones. Sure. Um, But basically, this one is going to end right where I've been kind of leading up to, which is. Um, the JFK Alan Dulles showdown, mm-hmm. and this episode will end like right as that's about to happen. And I kind of anticipate having a few offshoots of it. Uh, I, I want to do an episode or two on James Angleton sp- specifically. I'll do some MK Ultra, and then really, you know, JFK, and maybe some Vietnam as well, which Cam and I have talked about. But that's way down the road. Uh, uh, but I guess uh, you know, let's um. Let's kind of get into it. So, yeah. As I just we... wanted to
1: note, of course, we're talking about the famous JFK-Allen Dulles Showdown, which was fought uh, at, at uh, midnight with pistols, not yeah. the later uh, Sabre Duel uh, or the horseback archery competition, which were both lackluster. Not
0: possible. those. Yeah. yeah. Not
1: anyway.
0: those. Oh, those over-discussed historical events. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're yeah, not right plebeians. So, <laughs> um, so Anyway. As we, la- as we left off last time in, the, uh, in this series, Alan Dulles was now in control of the CIA, and he was engaging in regime change in the Americas with Guatemala and in Asia with Iran.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: However, there was still plenty of work going on in America and in Europe as the fledgling American intelligence apparatus resituated the Nazi high command into positions of power. So remember way back in part two of the miniseries uh, when we di- when we discussed the rat lines that let Nazi war criminals escape prosecution at Nuremberg mm-hmm. prosecution that Moscow rightfully demanded. Well, one of the preeminent Nazi war criminals that was smuggled out of Berlin was Reinhard Galen. Okay. So Galen was about a. Him before? Yeah, we did a little bit. Okay. But now I'm going to get man. much more into him. Okay. Yeah. So Galen was a freak of a man, and he was much different than, say, you know, the dashing and square soldier, uh, square-shouldered Carl Wolf. So Galen was slight and diminutive, with pale, almost translucent skin, yeah. piercing blue eyes, and a receding hairline. He honestly kind of reminds me of uh, the book version of um, Roose Bolton in Game oh, of sure. Thrones. Yeah. yeah, the pale skin, piercing blue eyes. Yeah. Uh, And so, in 1951, he was seated in New York watching the World Series with his deputy, Heinz Herra. Uh, Now, Heinz Herra was a Nazi that had fallen in love with baseball and American culture. Uh, And alongside the pair was their CIA handler. Instead of being tried and executed at Nuremberg, they were hiding in plain sight, enjoying America in a way that many of its own citizens could not enjoy. And all this time, they were building West Germany's intelligence apparatus— the Galen Organization, as it was colloquially called.
1: Okay.
0: So US Army intelligence initially oversaw the Galen organization, but became distraught when Galen continually hired SS and Gestapo agents, <laughs> despite promising not to. And you know what? Nazi could ever be untrustworthy.
1: Yeah, that's that's usually uh, not their MO.
0: Yeah. Well, no worries, as the CIA took oversight and they were more than happy to incorporate convicted war criminal Dr. Franz Six one of the architects of the final solution, an enthusiastic and unrepentant anti-Semite, and a man that personally led SS death squads. Uh, He had only spent four years in prison before being hired by Galen. (laughs) So, So the man that Dulles tapped to fold the Galen organization into the CIA was Jim Critchfield, a man that had witnessed firsthand the abominations of Dachau He recalled watching in stunned silence as two nearly starved-to-death prisoners chased down an escaping SS guard and choked him to death. He had an open mind, though, even saying Galen and his senior staff and their wives all impressed us as being unusually intelligent and well-educated. In personal characteristics, apparent values, and thoughts about the future of Germany and Europe, these ex-Nazi officers did not seem to me significantly different from my contemporaries in the U.S. Army." Kind yeah. of telling on himself there. but oh, right, yeah. It's,
1: it's, it's like um, those memes where it's like, you know, you're so close to getting it. When yeah, like, like, yeah. Like conservatives. Yeah. And, you know, like, getting Almost the getting the point.
0: <clears throat> oh, So this asshole once said Galen had a, quote, high standard of morality with Christian beliefs. Mm-hmm. And he said this without irony. Yeah, that rules. Yeah. yeah. So... The CIA itself concluded in a 1954 internal memo that 13% of the Galen organization was made up of, quote, hardcore Nazis, and that they had allowed it to happen. For what what it's worth, the Soviet Union made consistent in their anti-American propaganda that the U.S. was building their hegemony with the likes of Galen, and British intelligence frequently made known how disgusted they were. But of course, they still benefited from this arrangement and could just try to save face by airing their disgust, knowing no one would listen. And really, this is a major theme in the Cold War, as the British would routinely dump the worst optics on the U.S. and act like they gave a shit. They were fine with America being the bad guys, and let me tell you, America was more than fine as well being the bad guys. Right. So, Galen and his organization were quite clear that they saw the Cold War as the continuation of the Third Reich's offensive against the Russian people and, quote, Jewish Bolshevism. Galen boldly and bluntly criticized Eisenhower for the latter's restrained peace efforts at Geneva in 1955, expressing that, in international politics, one should never tell a Russian that one will not shoot him, and should not, under any circumstances, be as convincing in that position as Eisenhower. (laughs) So, with regards to the concept of Jewish Bolshevism, Bolshevism, much of the Nazi hatred of communism, other than being diametrically opposed politically was the idea that communism was a Jewish conspiracy for world domination. And many of the old Bolsheviks, as well as Karl Marx himself, were at the very least ethnically Jewish, if not, you know, religiously.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But yeah, I mean, a lot of those early, uh, like, oh, when the first Russian Revolution first happened, a lot of the people in power were Jewish. Yep. And so this was of great concern to the anti-Semites across Europe. Yeah, They're not totally just Slavs, but Jewish Slavs. But like, yeah, can right, you fucking but... believe this shit? Oh, God.
1: It's funny, you know, it makes me think of um do you remember uh, an american tale, the cartoon about the mouse the like the russian jewish mouse family that like flee Oh yeah. In the in the movie it's Fivel, you know? Yeah, probably. yeah, fight, yeah, yeah. And so like there's this whole scene where they're fleeing cats with uh what are the the big furry hats called? The russian hats that have like stars. They're supposed Ushankos? to like come with cats. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they come to America for, like, a better life. And it's like, I don't know, man. I I don't know. Anyway, it just made me think of that. (laughs) Yeah. Weird movie.
0: Yeah. So the Dulles brothers and Galen were perfectly in concert with each other. The Third Reich held the belief that nothing short of total extermination of the Russian peoples should be the goal of the Eastern Front War. And for the Dulleses, nothing but the total extermination of communism should be the goal of the Cold War. Mm. Their massive retaliation policy of nuclear annihilation of the Soviet Union and China was directly influenced by Galen and the Third Reich's position. Galen routinely cooked intelligence to make the Soviet Union seem much stronger than it was, and the Dulleses knew it was a lie but fed it to Washington in order to give credence to their philosophy and goals. And that's one of the most insane parts of the death, death drive of the Cold War. It was official U.S. policy that if there were ever anything more than a skirmish with the Soviets, the U.S. would immediately completely nuke both the Soviet Union and China. If total extermination of communists in one country is allowed, you may as well just genocide the rest of them, right? Yeah. Like, if they ever got into, like, more than a small fight with the Soviets, they just would have destroyed China, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, fucking insane. Right. Like... I...
1: Sorry, I was going to say, it sounds like you're saying that, you know... <laughs> A lot of the Soviet Union's capacity at this point to retaliate uh, was vastly over over overplayed in, in U.S. Oh yeah, the, right? the people so in intelligence we knew could have how much.
0: Done it at that point. Yeah, yeah, the like, people like in intelligence of... who are really, really fighting for this knew that the U.S. could just obliterate the Soviet Union. You know what I mean? Like they had already, like the board was already set at a point that the Soviet Union would not have been able. To like man, withstand. I tell you
1: what, <laughs> this is what you get. We we you see a wasp, you kill it. Instead, now look at us. We got wasp's yeah. nests. And uh, we yeah, the Soviet Union
0: should have just overrun Europe after World War II when they had the chance. Yeah, because they were popular. Everybody yeah. loved communists and the Soviet Union because they were seen as liberators. Yeah, they could have. We could have had a workers' paradise, man.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, man, and, and mustaches would be more popular, and uh, what else? One, we wouldn't have to... Bors, a lot of yeah. bors. Yeah, which I've heard is pretty yummy. Uh, we wouldn't have to choose between different brands of water bottle, you know? You just have one big... Called on water, water, water bottle. Company. Yeah, literally called bottled water. <laughs> and it could even You could put a little American flag on it, that'd be fine.
0: Yeah, all right. And so, it wasn't just with the Galen organization that former Nazi war criminals found their way into the government in West Germany. Hans Globke, a bureaucrat that helped draft the Nuremberg Laws that were the basis for the Jewish extermination, became the right-hand man of West German Chancellor Konrad Adenauer. So Otto John or Otto John, former anti-Nazi hero that took part in the Valkyrie plot, found himself going head-to-head with Galen, a man that still considered it treason to be against Hitler. John was the head of the Internal Security Service of West Germany and opposed Dulles's and Galen's tactics and plans for German rearmament and the cozy attitude towards Nazis and so Galen had him drugged and smuggled into East Germany and then drugged and smuggled back to West Germany, making him look like a communist de- defector or agent. I Meanwhile this dudes just probably confused as hell, but they made it so that people yeah. would see him in these places right. Uh, so he was pushed out of service in West Germany, and the Galen organization was transformed into the legitimate Bundesnachrichtentendienst, or the BND, as I will call it from now on.
1: Okay.
0: One of the preeminent Nazis was now in charge of the intelligence apparatus of West Germany, with total legitimacy by the West.
1: Wow.
0: Yep. And now, you may be asking yourself, what would somebody like Reinhard Galen try to do... If he had this much power in Western uh Western Europe.
1: Uh, I don't know. Restart the Third Reich? <laughs>
0: Did you? Cameron, you would be correct. <laughs> All right. Super can bring out the hair like a super Saiyan, yo, uh, mm. the, man, uh, better than the man, yo, uh, mm. a, how the make a bed, uh, uh, mm. little bitch ride, I don't vote anyone to kill my vibe, if she slide, then she better be clean like thai. Uh, Laundry, detergent I'ma get up in that body like a surgeon Put it wetter than a damn sea urchin Denzel be a fucking legend like Urban Legendary shit, you on your secondary shit I'm on my Yes Jewels mixed with Katy Perry shit White on white when a am beat Make a masterpiece like Mona Lisa Shout out to the Reaper Drop Ethel, drop more cracked eggs on Easter. I don't know the feature, or you them leave it to me, but you leave it to people Killing these niggas like some exchebo. I am a god, nigga, call me your sheep. Look at the testament, better than ever been making an estimate for my pay. we're like a Mexican, saving the rest of it. By getting a resident on a new day, Get a new house. With the same girl, but she got a new blouse. cuz running to me when I ain't no mouse. Probably on point like a motherfucker chouse. Yo, yo. So Yeah a <coughs> So it was under the auspicious leadership of Reinhard Galen that the project that would come to be known as Operation Gladio would descend on Europe. Now, while the government, the American government, has not admitted to Gladio in any capacity, something that cannot be said when it comes to other truly insane operations such as MK Ultra or MK right. Naomi, even though what has been admitted with those is a limited hangout, um, they've just flat out denied Gladio. Which that should get you thinking. All right, why would they? Just right. not even admit to any part of this. So, there is a massive amount of academic research about Gladio, and it was recognized officially by Christian Democrat Prime Minister of Italy, Giulio, Giulio Andriotti, on the 24th of October 1990. And its tendrils are wide reaching throughout Italy and Europe as they bring in the Vatican, the infamous Masonic Lodge Propaganda Due, European banks, fascist paramilitaries, and many more. I will do episodes in the future about Gladio, the strategy of tension, the years of lead, and exactly why I think the U.S. government still denies any aspect of its existence, even when leaders of the countries that it was happening in have admitted that it's real.
1: Right.
0: Uh, But for now, by 1956, Galen, with the help of the CIA, and especially Alan Dulles, had drawn up a plan to undo the left-wing democratic movement in Europe by reinstituting fascism in West Germany and liquidating left-wing politicians that were gaining power through, guess what, democracy. By now, the West knew the Soviet Union would not roll through Western Europe and institute a workers' paradise, but they were deathly worried about uh, the left-wing governments coming to power. The Soviet Union and communists were heroes in Europe at this time for their steadfast resistance to fascism, and these governments were being elected in order to normalize relations with the East. The concern is that the people would dem- democratically move to socialism, and then perhaps even communism.
1: We can't have that.
0: Yeah, and you can't have the Soviet Union being normalized. It has right. to seem alien. So right. in order right. to prepare... It
1: has to seem like this horrible, evil empire.
0: Yeah. So in order to prepare for this possibility, Gladio was conceived of, and fascist-powered military groups were covertly trained and commanded in Western Europe in case they needed to be called to action. Mm-hmm. They were stay-behind armies, or stay-behind networks. That's what they were called. Okay. Once the Red Army never came, these groups began to uh, covert acts of terrorism and sabotage to terrorize the populations of the country into voting right-wing. The attacks were often blamed on the left, and also included coups and assassinations, including of Italian Prime Minister Aldo Moro. And, you know, if you want just, like, a, a very funny look at belligerents pages on Wikipedia, mm-hmm. look at, like, the years of lead in Italy and shit. And you'll see the CIA in multiple columns of belligerence. <laughs> it's very fucking fight. Like, just like take, like being like both of backing the government and then backing paramilitary groups against the right. government. It's just like, like your brain starts to fucking melt. Just looking at that shit. like how much, uh, it's like how many like covert and like subterfuge acts were going on, especially in Italy. Yeah. The CIA had a fucking hard on over Italy. Because they like believed if Italy ever went socialist or communist, it would just sweep through Europe. They believed yeah. it was a linchpin, much like Vietnam.
1: That's because they're both kind of they both kind of dangle.
0: Yeah, uh, they're they're dangles. Uh, yeah, they're dangle. People bows. there
1: tend to get really great tans.
0: Yeah, Indochina uh, and Italy. Yep.
1: Delicious food.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Good soups. A lot of
1: reasons to. to, to drive yeah, this
0: to soup. worry about the communists getting the soup technology. Yeah. Of Italy yep uh in the end galen retired peacefully and lived out his old age on a private estate in west germany with his extended yeah, of family
1: of course he did
0: yeah like yeah, the, yeah one of the worst humans in modern history and he just like, fuck and he gets everything he lives the most charmed life
1: like i don't know about you but honestly being Nazi, like worked out pretty good for me like, I, yeah I, I don't hear what all the fuss is about
0: yeah uh so he had allowed a soviet double agent to become the head of counterintelligence for a decade at bnd but still at his retirement the nazi cur was thrown a banquet in washington you Hmm. know for services rendered in the name of democracy and freedom
1: yeah and uncle sam Yep. and Uh, and 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 the baseball game is was that part of it or was that before
0: Oh, that was when they were getting show- that was before. That was in the early 50s. That was like when they were
1: first getting rolling. Yeah,
0: they were showing them the American way of life. You know, you know. Yeah. If you were black, you couldn't see the American way of life. But if you were a Nazi war criminal, mass murderer, you yeah. could yeah, you could then,
1: absolutely yeah. get a couple of couple of hot dogs in you, Yeah. Couple couple of couple of twenty dollar beers, which back then probably cost a nickel.
0: Yep. Probably. You know? A couple yep. of
1: nickel drafts and uh...
0: yell some racial slurs. Yep. yep. Yeah, you can yell some racial slurs at Jackie Robinson. Um, yeah. What more could you want as a Nazi?
1: I was gonna say, like, yeah, that's that's sort of like their their thing. Yeah, It was just
0: being beer uh, and racism. Being,
1: yeah, and sausages.
0: Beer, sausages, and racism.
1: Yeah, so baseball really is. Yeah, kind of like their ideal sport.
0: Yeah, for real, it's
1: got all those things in droves.
0: Yeah, it's got it's got all all the requirements that a growing Nazi needs. Yeah, all the good yeah. stuff
1: beer over internalized racism and sausage. Yeah, honestly, all things I like too, except for the racism part. <laughs>
0: yeah, take take me out to the ball game.
1: Yeah, I, I, I like a beer and a sausage.
0: Yeah, I, f- I fucking love a beer and a sausage.
1: Yeah, ain't nothing wrong with that.
0: Yeah, all right. Well, <laughs> well let's uh, let's keep going. <laughs> yeah, all right. So, I will also briefly touch on some MKUltra background here, as it coincides with this current narrative of the evolution of the American intelligence apparatus that ran parallel to the overt coups of nations like Guatemala and Iran. I have gone into some MKUltra events in the Frank Olsen episode, which is episode 31, and the Mm -hmm. Korean War episode, which is episode 54, and also touched on how hand-in-glove MKUltra and Naomi worked in both the Korean War episode and the a spree episode, which is episode thirty-five.
1: I love that episode.
0: Yeah, that's maybe my favorite episode that I've done. Yeah, yeah
1: that's, that's a really cool one.
0: Super fucked up. Yeah. Not all good, but yeah, that yeah. story. <laughs> yeah, um, I will go much more in depth soon on MK Ultra, but I do want to hammer home on how the goal of MK Ultra was not just to brainwash people into assassins, but rather that radically reengineering the human brain and controlling popular opinion was also a goal of the program, and really. Uh, and this is my speculation right now, may have been the goal of successor programs that I believe continue to this day.
1: Mm.
0: So just look at the rightward shift from the New Deal politics of FDR to the Reagan revolution 35 years later to the total sec- uh, security takeover with open arms by the American people post 9-11. These are not disparate or discrete events, but rather, again, I would speculate, have evolved naturally through intentional reprogramming of the American consciousness now and as i went over in the korean war episode titled brain warfare the cia and alan dulles claimed that american mind control research was only to combat soviet techniques when in fact the americans began experimenting with mind control almost immediately after world war ii and well before reports of soviet mind control which would later prove to be overblown the soviets employed standard techniques of interrogation The CIA would later admit that the Soviet and Chinese techniques largely consisted of isolation regimens and stretched positions in order to draw out coerced testimony. This amounted to being forced to stand in the same spot for hours, and occasionally brute force was involved. For more information, I highly recommend listening to that episode. And along the same lines of the Frank Olson case was the death of CIA agent James Kronthal, the protege of Alan Dulles. Groomed to eventually be Dulles' successor, Kronthal was turned into a double agent by the NKVD, the Soviet Union secret police. Uh-huh. Kronthal was a homosexual and also a pedophile who liked young boys. This was known to the Gestapo during World War II, and eventually the NKVD got a hold of the Gestapo's files on Kronthal. They set up a honey trap for him of young Chinese boys in Switzerland to film the act. Eventually, the CIA caught up to this deception, and Alan Dulles himself had likely talked to Kronthal... A man looked at like a son by Dulles into killing himself with an undetectable toxin. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, suicide letters. I
1: mean, were... It sounds like he deserved
0: it. Yeah, because you know he was a pedophile.
1: Being a pedophile, although you never know. I'm surprised he didn't become like head of the West German fucking yeah. children's welfare fund. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Seriously. Um. So suicide letters were prepared, and CIA agents were seen. Uh returning to his home the night that he died they were accompanying him so mm. it sounds like they were like so you, you're gonna kill yourself you can do it yourself or we'll hold down and do it for you uh right but let's so write these letters the nice. we'll we'll make sure the letters get to the people that you want them yeah. to get to but you're killing yourself tonight <laughs> one way or the other buddy yeah um Oof. so d- yeah during the early days of MK Ultra, Dulles even subjected his own son to the program, Ooh. or at least its doctors and experts. The, yellow, the younger Dulles Jr. suffered a debilitating head wound in the Korean War that left him brain damaged, and the once bright and affable young man was now prone to fits of rage that even sent shivers down the elder Dulles' spine. Yeah. He also struggled to find his way around on his own and needed constant care. And what was likely ch- the truly unnerving thing for the Elder Dulles, Alan Jr. would occasionally go into rampages about his father being a Hitler lover and Nazi collaborator. My um, opinion doesn't sound so brain damaged. But, no. Since those are true as shit.
1: No. Well, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. I mean, and here's the thing. So, A, I find it interesting that here's a guy, Alan Dulles, who, how do I word this without sounding like I'm like glorifying it? i don't know at least at least his kid went you know a lot of these dudes they yeah. get their their family members out of it well um, yeah, apparently and,
0: and like, the, one of the things is dulles didn't really have love for anybody like he was a sociopath so like he yeah. tried to talk his son out of it he didn't want his son to do it but his son kind of like did it behind his back signed up and like went to the front line yeah And was apparently like super like brazen and like when he got injured he just like ran into like a fucking field and started wow. murking Koreans like left and right and Chinese and like was trying to rally his troops and then right before they like finished like the maneuver he got hit by his huge piece of shrapnel right in his head <laughs> and like they were pulling pieces out in like multiple surgeries
1: damn
0: <laughs> yeah oh, that's fucking awful yeah um but yeah, so the man in charge of of Dulles Junior's uh, MK Ultra ing uh, was Doctor Harold Wolf, who headed uh, the the Society of the for the investigation of human ecology, which I believe we talked about in the Korean War episode. That
1: sounds familiar, yeah. Yeah, it also was, known as the Wolf's
0: Den. Yeah, it was the CIA's front to disseminate funds for mind control research, and it was a typically spooky name for a CIA front who have all those like really weird names like that, like very like. Like, what? I don't know. Just like, not really descript. Yeah. So, what, what, what do you Was what what the investigation yeah. of human ecology? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it would eventually okay. become known as the Human Ecology Fund. <coughs> um, ah, yeah. yeah. So, Dr. Donald Ewan Cameron, who we also discussed in the Korean War app, okay. was possibly brought in once Wolf's testing failed.
1: So Cameron was the psychic
0: driving pervert that aimed to blast away people's old personalities through inhumane torture and massive amounts of psychedelics and fill in the resulting void with desired traits. So Cameron had the sleep room, which was his name for the psychic driving chamber, and would include so much electrical voltage going through patients that they would sometimes fracture their spines and shatter their teeth while convulsing. Wow. (laughs) Yeah.
1: That's kind of metal.
0: Yeah. Uh, Allen Jr. You would imagine, eventually like,
1: clenching so hard that you snapped your own spine. Dude, yeah, <laughs> <That's...
0: Ugh. laughs> Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Allen Jr. would eventually go to the Jungian Belleville Sanatorium in Europe and live peacefully there, away from his father, until Allen Sr.'s death. At which time, Allen Jr. agreed to move back to the United States, where he remained under the care of his sister until his death in 2020 from COVID.
1: Oh my goodness! <laughs> I, wow!
0: I yeah, seeing like these two things like meet like that, kind of like yeah. I was it, like, puts very... it,
1: it puts it into perspective, like how this wasn't that long ago.
0: Yeah, yeah. That this dude you know? who is Alan Dulles' son in the Korean War died like he from COVID. In the Korean
1: War, yeah. He was probably like
0: I think he was like eighty, older
1: than my parents, but younger than my grandparents.
0: Yeah,
1: or maybe about my grandparents' age. Yeah, so I think he was close. about eighty or so. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Wow. Nice to hear that he was able to escape his father and live like a yeah. long time. Totally, man. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like he was really uh haunted by he was MK ultra by his own dad.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: like, uh now the senior Dulles had even attempted to subject other families to MK Ultra, including his wife. And when I was reading about this I could just all I could think about was like Kronos eating his own children in order yeah. to remain in power.
1: Yeah. Yep. Oh, mhm. He really he really knew no
0: shame did he? No, he had no shame whatsoever. He is just true like just a piece of mosquito shit, man, just a worm. Yeah.
1: A truly abjectly terrible individual.
0: Yeah. <coughs> yep. So so here we are now deep into the Eisenhower administration with the Dulles brothers pulling the strings and taking the American state into strange directions with the CIA's programs at home and abroad. However, it must also be noted that the CIA did not just use covert and psychological operations to achieve its goals, it also loved to use the blunt trauma of murder to, t- to protect American business interests globally. story I'm about to tell now, I had made a short uh, Twitter thread about it, so if you want to, uh, uh, I suggest people go and look at that. And, and uh, it has to do with um, Rafael Trujillo, the braggadocious vagabond who ruled the Dominican Republic with an iron fist mm-hmm. and made sure to grease the palms of his American neighbors to the north in order to stay in power. Keep them greasy, boys. Yep. The majority of Latin America was ruled by right-wing dictatorships with the explicit yep. support of Washington in order to confirm the uh, the resources of the countries as being owned by American businesses. However, one Spanish-born scholar, Jesus de Galindez, drew the ire of Trujillo. Uh, now, uh, Jesus de Galindez looks literally exactly like Fredo Corleone. Yeah. Like, literally exactly like Fredo Corleone. So yeah. if you want, go to my Twitter thread, and I put a few pictures there, and it's like uncanny. Like he has the same pencil mustache, he yep. has the same like hairline with the big head, the same eyebrows, like the same like look on his face. It's very very funny. That uh,
1: was is uh, that John Cassavetes who played? Frugo?
0: Yeah, yeah, it was childhood Ooh, friends so, with Al Pacino.
1: Yeah, and didn't he has some crazy record? Like cause yeah. he died really young. Yeah,
0: he died in, in the seventies. Like,
1: Like, every movie he was ever in won an Oscar, like, one Best Picture.
0: Yeah, because he was in Dog Day Afternoon as well. Great, great film. Yeah.
1: Yep. Godfather, Godfather Mm 2, and then he was in something else that won Dog Day Afternoon. I don't remember. But, like, almost every, either all of them or almost every movie that he was ever in, one Best Picture. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: And it's only, like, five. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that
0: many. Yeah, yeah. He was Childhood Friends with Al Pacino, and then he died very young. (laughs)
1: He had cancer. So, yep. But yeah, he did look exactly
0: like that dictator. No, no, not dictator. The the scholar is used uh, to Galindez. That's
1: right. I'm sorry. I'm getting that mixed
0: up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Galindez was a Basque rebel during the Spanish Civil War, and he fought against Francisco Franco. After the war, he went to the Dominican Republic and realized just how bad it was in all of Latin America, but especially the small country on the island of Hispaniolo. He wrote a nearly 1,000-page dissertation as a polemic against Trujillo and his government. And while Galindez was a valuable FBI asset both during the war and after spying on Nazis in the former and communists in the latter, he became harshly critical of the Dulles' diplomacy projects. For this reason, and for his anti-Trujillo polemics, a CIA cutout detective firm named Mayhew & Associates drugged and kidnapped Galindez, only to deliver him to, to, to a Trujillo in the DR. Galindez was fucking boiled alive upon his Ugh. arrival, and what, what remained of his body was fed to sharks— Uh, Apparently Trujillo had, like, a particular cove that was, like, shark infested that he liked to get rid of bodies in.
1: That is a a particularly uh, James bond
0: approach
1: to execution. It is,
0: very much. Uh, So this would be the first overt example of the CIA tactic of extraordinary rendition. The disappearing Mm. of enemies of Washington and handing them over to foreign designs. And it's during these years in the 50s when the CIA begins taking on the appearance of an organized crime outfit, complete with a class system. At the top were the bosses and underbosses of the agency. These were the old money Ivy League types. These were the men from old American WASP families. Next were the ex-FBI hard guys and former cops, the capos and soldiers. Many of these types were Catholic and not afraid to get their hands dirty. And at the bottom were the associates, who were ruthless and disposable hired guns. A lot of these types even had ties to the actual mafia. Think Jack Ruby. And when push came to shove, the CIA was more than willing to throw these types under the bus. Now back to the Galindas story. The pilot that had flown Galindas to the DR was an American and, at the time, had been given a fake background story of Galindas being an old invalid who wanted to visit his old country once more before he died. Well, this man, Gerald Murphy, had a big mouth when drinking in the DR, and once he realized his passenger was Galindez, who had become a big national story, he got a little loose-lipped with the tail and was himself disappeared and executed by Trujillo. Nice. This would become a huge point of contention between the FBI and the CIA since Galindez was a valued FBI informant, and eventually the Mayhew agent involved, John Frank, was sniffed out, making it quite apparent that the CIA disappeared Galindez from under the FBI's nose.
1: How did they, how did they execute him? By like a... A slowly lowering pendulum (laughs) I think they just
0: threw him to the sharks. Oh,
1: okay.
0: I think. I I can't remember. I did read it, but I don't remember. (laughs) But um, Hoover would leak much of the story to the press, and in the end, Frank got away with the crimes uh, as he invoked his working for intelligence, thereby stunting any possible trial before it could begin. Mm. So neither the murder of Galindez nor the murder of Murphy ever saw charges brought against anyone. Unreal. Yep. Now back to the CIA and the mafia.
1: How do you just boil a guy?
0: I did like fucking Christ, bro. Like, <laughs> you think it's
1: like, serious question? You think it smelled good at any point? No. You don't think there would have been like a? I mean, does boiling probably a, probably a pig smell some... good? Yeah, probably. Yeah.
0: Uh, the boiling it? Just yeah, taking like, a pig and never, boiling it? Never
1: like braised. Uh, I feel like it would uh, smell like shoulder.
0: I feel like it would. Maybe, I guess. I don't know. I've
1: I've braised the pork shoulder. I mean that's immersed in liquid. Yeah. It smells real good.
0: Maybe, I don't know, maybe. Maybe. Maybe it would smell good to boil him. Well, man. I
1: mean eventually it would smell bad if they boiled him that long, but Yeah, and his skin starts sloughing off. There. Yeah. 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 But there might have been a point where it was like hmm, like what's Ooh, what's cooking?
0: Well succulent. Sweet and succulent. Oh. Alright, so now back to the CIA and the mafia. <laughs> The name of this episode is Murder Inc., a term applied to the CIA generally beginning with the JFK presidency, and named after the mafia enforcers from the 20s to the 40s. And while we're discussing the agency before the JFK presidency, my goal is to show just how the CIA really came to behave like another organized crime syndicate, leading up to their mass murder campaigns of the 60s and beyond. And really, they also heavily incorporated the mafia into their dealings in the 50s and 60s. James Angleton, counterintelligence chief, would personally meet with members of the Mafia to discuss business. The CIA often utilized the Mafia in order to hide their dealings and utilize their associates and contacts as well as funnel money to black ops. So after the Castro revolution in Cuba, Angleton sent some CIA officers to Miami to meet with none other other than Meyer Lansky, Jewish organized crime kingpin, in order to brainstorm how to take back control of the casinos in Havana, that they had just been booted from. Mm. Angleton had also wanted to utilize the mafia in order to assassinate <coughs> Castro and regain control of the American business interests on the island. Mm. For those unaware, Cuba before the revolution was basically owned by the Jewish and Italian mafias as a criminal colony of the United States, was administered by CIA-backed dictator Fulgencio Batista. This is famously dramatized in The Godfather Part Two, with the character Hyman Roth uh, being Meyer Lansky. Mm. Also, in the first one, Mo Green is supposed to be a Bugsy Siegel.
1: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow, I didn't
0: realize that. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the characters are you know, based off of actual ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, as a brief aside, Francis Ford Coppola, the writer-director of the Godfather series, spent time in Cuba around the making of the movie as he had a great reverence for the revolution. In an interview from 1976, Coppola said that communism in Cuba was, quote, fun and alive and joyous. He also said, When I first went to Italy in 1962, I went to the town where my grandfather had been born and saw communist posters, the hammer and the sickle, all over. That was a shock to me because that had been like the swastika up to that point. I had been decompressioned a little bit by the time of the Cuba trip, but still to see the red flowers and the red flags threw me. Although I must say, when I walked into the airport and I saw all the big blow ups of Che Guevara and what have you, I said, My God, this looks like Berkeley. (laughs) <laughs> there is no advertising there except for one product, the socialism of the country. But it is odd to see the thing that you had drummed into, that had been drummed into as evil and a scourge on the earth be celebrated as a source of joy. They call it our Marxism and our Leninism, like something that's theirs. And uh, another pretty long quote. So this is in response to the interviewer asking Coppola if he asked about freedom of expression in Cuba. Yes. Mm. No one is permitted to criticize the government other than through the channels that are provided for them. If you're a worker or if you're a writer, you can do it in your various workers' groups. In a factory, they get together a couple of nights a week and discuss problems, how to make things better, what's unfair, and stuff like that. So in other words, there are channels that allow you not to criticize the idea of the society, but to figure out how to make it better. I like the honesty of it. They say, no, you cannot criticize the government. That freedom, no, you do not have. Here in America, you can write... Or say anything you want and many people in Cuba are very impressed when you tell them this they are surprised when they when they see something like The Godfather 2 they wonder how could you make a film that says nice things about our revolution but the truth is I believe that the freedoms we have here are possible because they do not even come close to jeopardizing the real interests that govern our country if there were someone who really came close to jeopardizing those interests I believe our freedoms would vanish one way or another if there were a man, a political candidate, who was elected to office and began implementing real programs that were counter to the big interest, there would be a coup or a murder or whatever was necessary. Now this is me talking, think the business plot, from part one.
1: Yeah.
0: Back to the quote. In Cuba, they don't even have the illusion of that kind of political freedom. It's as though they're saying our revolution is too fragile, it has too many enemies, it is too difficult to pull off to allow forces inside and outside to work to counter it. I understand the implication of what I am saying—the dangers. But I put it to you: if they are right, if their society is truly beautiful and honest and worthwhile, then it, then it is worth protecting. Protecting, even with the suspension of freedom. In Chile, that newborn elected society was not protected in this way, and so it was destroyed. Ironically, the government that replaced it is not taking any chances, and is now and is controlling the press in opposition in a way Allende did not. End quote. Um. And uh, I, I, the whole interview that Francis Ford Coppola does in the newspaper is excellent. But I, I really do like that part because I feel like a lot of people don't realize that the Godfather Part Two has like a positive, that's like a very positive portrayal of Cuba. Yeah, and it's showing how basically raped Cuba was by America and by you know the mafia. Yeah
1: i haven't seen part two in a really long time i need to revisit it yeah yeah but
0: yeah i just i wanted to throw this bit in the episode as i find it a very fascinating portrayal of cuba especially at that time in american history you know, there are so many incredible threads really in both parts one and two, but especially two that connect to real power political events because so much of this Cold War history in the late 50s throughout the 60s and even to the into the 70s revolves around the Italian mafia in Cuba, the American colony that deigned to yeah. shake off the yoke of imperialism. Um,
1: it's really interesting how much has changed with regards to organized crime and the influence that they're able to exert yeah because i mean i'm sure these days there's still some like you know little tony soprano type guys running around yeah doing doing small time shit but people don't realize that like it's not just the movies like the italian mob and the jewish mob were both hyper influential and powerful for a long time well on like a national level
0: yeah so i like uh the you know my my favorite podcast ghost stories for the end of the world they have an ongoing series uh, called Casino, mm-hmm. which is about basically how the mafia was double-crossed by the CIA. So, like, the mafia was really completely incorporated into American the American intelligence apparatus. This is also yeah. something that's really dramatized how it eventually came to be in the HBO series Boardwalk Empire, mm-hmm. uh, how organized crime became so intertwined with the government. Yeah. But it was during, like, the, the commissions in the 70s, like the Church Commission... The um the House Select Committee on assassinations, all these things that the CIA uh, at that point, in order to protect itself, double-crossed the mafia and burned them and burned all the mafia bridges, mm-hmm. and that's what really like led to the C- uh, to the mafia being dismantled. And even just by the eighties, they were so much weaker already. It was them. It was the CIA just saying, "Yeah, fuck off. We'll give you guys them."
1: Damn. Yeah, surprised they didn't boil them instead
0: of burning them. <laughs> so anyway, so I'll, I will refrain from getting too much more into the Cuban Revolution. It's been done by much better podcasts than this one, like Blowback Season Two. Yeah, um awesome. But I will say this: the reason Castro and his revolutionary government were so despised by the United States establishment was because he, his brothers, and Che Guevara, along with the rest of the 26th of July Movement, were incorruptible. They, in my opinion, were the best of the communist revolutionaries of the 20th century, and you can still see that unflinching spirit in the country today, 60 years later. They seized all of the American-owned plantations, factories, utilities, and casinos. They freed the slaves on the plantations, and they redistributed the wealth among the people of the country. This was unacceptable to the American establishment.
1: Yeah, obviously.
0: Yeah. In response, America desperately attempted to sabotage the small island. They dropped bombs on the island, and its sugar mills, they blew up Bolt. Boats in the Havana harbor, and they began planning an invasion using Cuban exiles. I will, however, share one uplifting story in this episode. One, only one. When Castro and the Cuban delegation came to New York City for the UN meeting in 1960, the Cubans, now Persona grata in America, were turned away from the Hotel Shelburne, where everyone else was staying. Eisenhower declared that the Cubans could not leave Manhattan, and just as they were literally getting ready to pitch tents, Malcolm X intervened and had them put up in Harlem at the Hotel Teresa. Yeah. For those outside of the U.S., Harlem is a predominantly black neighborhood in Manhattan. There, they were welcomed as heroes for their victory over American imperialism and greeted by huge numbers of Cubans as well. It was obvious what kind of victory the Cuban Revolution was. Black Cubans almost universally cheered on Castro and the delegation, while the white Cubans scorned and jeered at them. A gangster kingpin even offered to put up the cost of the hotel for the Cubans, as they did not have access to so much cash. The entire event became a public relations disaster for the U.S., who could have guessed, as the community most marginalized by the U.S. government and establishment, the black community, rallied around the Cubans in their fight against the U.S. empire. Other world leaders began traveling to Harlem to meet with the Cubans, which further showed light on the real nature of the U.S., Obviously, Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet premier, was ecstatic to Journey to Harlem and another PR coup. Other leaders like President Nasser of Egypt joined in, and the media closely followed. By trying to slight the Cuban delegation, the U.S. not only put a spotlight on their hypocrisy, but also their racial tensions. Suddenly, some of the ritziest hotels offered the Cubans rooms free of charge, but Castro turned the entire thing into a media spectacle and stayed put. It was one victory, and then in, in his unending string of victories against the U.S. Oh yeah,
1: yeah. I remember hearing that story, probably from Blowback. Yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, that rocks. Yeah, it just it you know it just makes the American establishment look so silly.
0: Yeah, I think it was Malcolm X called uh, Fidel Castro the first white man that he's ever really liked as well.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny.
0: Yep. Yeah, it just blew up in their fucking face. Yeah.
1: Totally.
0: Yeah. Yep. Now, of course, the CIA did not just want, uh, want to let this happen. Before the UN delegation's arrival, Bob Mayhew, who we spoke of earlier in the his tale, met with Chicago outfit boss Johnny Roselli to plan an assassination attempt between the CIA and the mafia. This assassination campaign would last for decades and across presidencies, and it really ramped up once Castro returned to Cuba. The U.S. impounded all of Cuba's planes in the U.S. due to claims by American businesses, so Castro flew home with the Soviets. Once he landed, three separate bombs went off throughout Havana and behind the presidential palace. CIA was not happy with Castro's visit. And not long after Castro left, Senator John Fitzgerald Kennedy also made an appearance at the Hotel Teresa and praised Castro and his ideals. Both JFK and Castro were the second sons of entrepreneurial fathers. Joseph Kennedy rising to power as a bootlegger and businessman during Prohibition and on Castro being a rich Galician Spanish farmer that moved to Cuba during the Cuban War of Independence but as the presidential campaign with Nixon in 1960 to 1961 wore on JFK took a hardline anti-Cuba stance even further to the right than Nixon. Castro would call JFK an illiterate and ignorant millionaire. However their lives would soon become as entangled as the Gordian Knot and their stances on each other would dramatically alter over the coming years Still, even when denouncing Castro, JFK also denounced the colonialism that led to the Cuban Revolution and the U.S.'s policy on Latin America in general. And now to get towards where this entire series has been building up, the showdown between JFK and Alan Dulles. series has mainly focused on Alan Dulles and the rise of America's secret government. As we've covered in this series, the real rise of what is generally called the deep state or the power behind the government can be traced back basically to the founding of the U.S., but it really came to be as capitalism matured with the Industrial Revolution and as America began to wage war on behalf of corporate interests. Alan Dulles did not sculpt this apparatus from whole cloth, but rather was just a particularly adept architect and one of many of this bloody and still continuing process. And for it to fully come together, FDR and the New Deal had to go. So one of its chief victories was actually in getting conservative loser Harry Truman onto the ballot at the 1944 Democratic Party Convention against FDR's incumbent Vice President Henry Wallace, a true New Deal believer. Had Wallace succeeded FDR, he may have been able to stem the tide for a bit, but without a true socialist takeover of the American system, I believe this horrible, horrible outcome was always inevitable. So in steps JFK to the American presidency in 61. JFK throughout his administration with growing popularity, and he began to usher in some New Deal-era social democratic policies and talk of a Civil Rights Act. The real issue, however, was not JFK wanting to engage in detente with the Soviet Union in Cuba and leave Vietnam. This was unacceptable to the military-industrial complex that had been built post-World War II. And then you look down the line and see RFK waiting in the wings and Ted Kennedy after them, and you may start to get concerned that another New Deal coalition is being built and by a hugely popular potential political dynasty. Uh-oh. And you might just start to get some ideas in your head about how to stop that from happening were you Alan Dulles.
1: You might get some ideas in your head about putting some ideas into someone else's head.
0: At high velocity. At
1: high velocity. Yeah. We're just going to go ahead and op-
0: make a little opening the- there to let some of these Alan- ideas in. Alan Dulles writing suck on this on a bullet. <laughs> putting it... <laughs> Loading yeah, it into a Carcano rifle. They played
1: that Nickelback song. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: I cut your name in the side of a bullet. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, JFK's political career initially did not get off to an auspicious beginning as he struggled to connect with the working class Irish and Italian neighborhoods in the 11th district, encompassing parts of Boston and Cambridge. Mm. The son of a millionaire, again, Joe Kennedy, he was a bootlegger would have to prove his worth, and he eventually did by connecting with mothers of sons that died in the war. JFK's older brother, Joe Kennedy Jr., had died in the war as well, and suddenly JFK reminded these women of their own sons, and from that moment he was off to the races. JFK developed a hatred of war due to his own service and the death of his older brother. He had written home that, quote, all war is stupid after nearly losing his own life in the South Pacific, and he would keep that feeling as he entered office, constantly trying to tame his belligerent cabinet members, and Dulles hated him for it. Dulles' own son had been permanently disabled in the war, and this brought out no real sympathy from him. He had no feelings. Yeah. So Jack Kennedy, as he is so affectionately referred to as by his boomer admirers, was obsessed with death. His brother Robert would say after his death that roughly half of all the days he lived, he was in immense pain. He had addison's disease, which if you look at colorized pictures of him and some of them, his skin is noticeably darkened, yep, as well as chronic back and abdominal issues. He frequently had back surgery and while appearing youthful and vigorous, was often behind the scenes of physical duress. One doctor told him he would not live past forty five, and this was very nearly true. yeah, well, <laughs> yeah,, yeah. <laughs> not for the same reasons, but it
1: kind of worked out that way, huh?
0: yeah. And for these reasons, he constantly obsessed about death. What, what are you doing?
1: I'm just grabbing the water.
0: Oh, I, dude, I thought you were taking a piss. I was like, are you fucking kidding me?
1: No, no I mean, eventually the water will turn into piss. But...
0: I just thought you were taking a piss on air with the, the no, phone no. with you. I
1: mean, that's one of the good things about using my phone, is I can move a little bit. Yeah. I was just like sitting in there, because the, where my phone charger is, it's like right by the bed, so I was like lying in bed. Yeah. And I'm getting all you know there's a nice breeze coming in the window oh dude
0: yeah i'm getting dizzy watching you constantly move and fidget around with the phone
1: yeah i'm sorry no worries
0: there's just nowhere in
1: there that i
0: can like leave it yeah sitting but continue all right so jfk and dulles first met in 1954 while kennedy was a senator they talked at length many times and dulles thought of him and his brother as regents instructing a young prince However, already had JFK begun having reservations about the Cold War. He went on a fact-finding mission to Asia in the early 1950s and irrevocably changed his outlook on Vietnam, which he believed would inevitably become a socialist nation, and that no amount of French or American force could keep it in the Western sphere of influence. Mm. Kennedy would denounce American and Western imperialism both in Indochina and in Algeria, although as a good American politician, he would pepper his speeches with Soviet denouncements as well. This drew the ire of Eisenhower and the Dulleses, and Ike himself would refer to JFK as that little bastard. JFK, right. <laughs> JFK derided Eisenhower as cold and aloof, and John Foster Dulles as more or less an idiot dominated by empty political axioms like godless communism and Soviet master plan that were seemingly more and more false. All right, and so at this point, I'm going to warn everybody that I'm going to recite some pretty incredibly racist stuff here from the Eisenhower administration and what pissed them off so much about JFK being pro-African independence. So just going to give a content warning that it's going to be pretty uh, um, corrosive, what I'm about to say. I'm ready. So the Eisenhower administration was very concerned that if the West left Africa to its own devices, many of the countries would turn communist, And gee, I wonder why all of these former colonial territories are so consistently pro-socialist. Right. So therefore, in support of continued repression and Western occupation, Vice President Richard Nixon would say, quote, Some of the peoples of Africa have been out of trees for only about 50 years.
1: Oh my God.
0: To which Budget Director Maurice Stans replied that he, quote, had the impression that many Africans still belonged in trees. Dude, this is like 60 years ago. I know. All right, and then Eisenhower... Dude, and Eisenhower would also express resentment at having to invite, quote, those N-words, and he most assuredly used the real word, Mm -hmm. to diplomatic receptions, the people in question being African dignitaries. Right. Uh
1: Dude, just so gross.
0: Just disgusting people, man. Like Mercifully, John Foster Dulles finally succumbed to colon cancer in nineteen fifty nine and died writhing in pain as the cancer spread throughout his body. Ever the Cold Warrior, he did not reflect upon the wretched life he lived, but actually made sure Nixon, Ike, and Allen would continue the fight after he died. Motherfucker was telling people to go to war as he lay dying. His dying words were a call to war against the entire world to stop oh, communism. God. Truly a viable, despicable insect of a man. Now, Dulles would not let his brother down, and he continued the onslaught against communism after his brother's death. In one particularly interesting story, Alan Dulles and Dwight D. Eisenhower would forever have their relationship fractured in May 1960 when a U-2 spy plane operated by the CIA was shot down over the Ural Mountains in the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic. This happened immediately before a peace summit between Eisenhower and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. Dulles had convinced Eisenhower to authorize the mission, assuring him that there was no way the Soviets could detect and shoot down the plane. Th- the timing of this mission was suspicious, and Air Force Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty even remarked openly that he believed the CIA intentionally provoked the incident in order to ruin the peace conference. Oh, yeah. Guess who was in the Soviet Union in 1960? Former Marine and U-2 spy plane technician Lee Harvey Oswald.
1: Oh, that's right.
0: <laughs> wow. So right when he's there, a U-2 spy plane is yeah. shot down. And it's believed that this was a CIA op against Eisenhower.
1: Yeah. Wow.
0: Makes you think. I wonder if he was a CIA operative who was instructed yeah. to give those plans to the Soviets.
1: Right. Oh, man.
0: <coughs> yep.
1: If there's one thing I learned from watching the movie JFK, which
0: yeah. I forget what episode that is, but we
1: have an episode on that, Yeah. Uh, it's that this whole thing stinks. Yeah. And, like...
0: The fingerprints of intelligence were all over him. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, really. And, like... I don't know. I find some of this stuff makes my eyes go crossed a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the more I learn about it, the more credible yeah. the ideas of, of that
0: assassination being an inside job. It is. It is yeah, it's the, not even
1: they seem more credible. They seem sort of like the
0: only
1: logical yeah. explanation, you know? Yeah,
0: because there's so much information to learn. But it's like once you start learning about this stuff, and especially about that, you start to, like, yourself – make the connections and then you see other people have and it's yeah. like this overwhelming like stack of evidence about all of these ties that you like had to like you know what i mean mm-hmm.
1: yeah yeah i know i'm i'm certainly there
0: yeah yeah me as too <laughs> although that's a, even you know you know i you know i was like a communist when i was a teenager but you know i used to try to reach out Marxist.org and it didn't make sense to me but I eventually, like, kind of, like, started moving more right and, like, not quite liberal, but, like, social democrat in my mid-twenties. But at no point, like, ever since I was, like, 15 or something like that, I just assumed JFK was killed by the CIA. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, like, coming back to it as, you know, a 30-something-year-old man and, like, with this huge mountain of evidence. It's very funny. I don't know, just getting back to it, it's like, oh, yeah, for sure, I was right when I was, like, 15. <laughs> Yeah.
1: yeah, I mean you can't say the same for all of the yeah wild conspiracy shit a, a young kid might laugh yeah. through, but this one is
0: it's so obvious. Yeah, I it mean, seems and that's, like it. Yeah, I mean, it's like the 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 fucking Zapruder film. You see his head snap back into the left, mm-hmm. and it's like, and then you have the, you know the the government and like liberals who are it's seemingly now it's only liberals who believe the the actual story uh, or the the Warren Commission, but they're like, no, he was shot from behind, and you're like. Dude, you can see back a back part of his head get blown out. yeah, as his head snaps back and they're like, no, he was shot from behind. That happens when you're shot from behind. Your head snaps backwards. That's how physics work.
1: <laughs> like I've heard like lots of people give varying explanations of how and why that could happen. And mm-hmm. it seems like it would have to be like a pretty weird, pretty specific mm-hmm. angle of attack to where it could like maybe be feasible. And even then it's like the odds of that happening are basically zero. Yeah. Because attempts to recreate it in like perfect laboratory conditions seem to never have Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, you know, many, many, many of the witnesses claim to see a guy from the Grassy Knoll shooting. Yep. Which was a head into the right. And his head goes back into the left.
1: Yeah. Regardless. It's a lot of sense.
0: Yep. Regardless, uh, it was after this that Eisenhower, who clearly also believed that he was set up by Dulles, finally believed that Alan Dulles ran an entirely separate government alongside his own, and he would claim that he was leaving his successor a legacy of ashes for trusting the Dulles brothers. In the final months leading up to the 1960 presidential election, Alan Dulles would play both Nixon and JFK in order to try and remain as DCI when the next administration took over. As I have discussed previously in the series, Nixon was a longtime benefactor of Dulles's, and he would likely keep Dulles on. However, Dulles had to beguile JFK, and even went so far as to brief JFK on intelligence work that JFK was then able to use in debates to hammer Nixon on foreign policy with regards to Cuba. Which Nixon couldn't really respond to, because he had actually been given, you know actionable intelligence and he couldn't you know break that confidence in the debate so he would have to like try to dodge those attacks wow yeah and after jfk's victory in the 1960 election by the skin of his teeth it was like a hundred thousand votes that he won by uh jfk disregarded the recommendations of his inner circle by retaining both j edgar hoover and alan Dulles as directors of the fbi and cia respectively Mm -hmm. he was cautioned to fire both of them as they were old reactionary staples of the past And JFK wanted to look forward, but he felt that he did not have the political capital to go against their networks of influence, and he would rue the day he made this decision. Yeah, but he,
1: I mean, he may have been right, though. Like, yeah. Like, it's, I'm not saying that it worked out.
0: uh, Yeah, no, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it would have been tough to go against their their networks.
1: Yeah, especially both of them.
0: I think he could have probably done Hoover. Uh, Alan Dulles probably would have. Maybe uh, been okay with that and made sure that that, that was okay, but enough. yeah, I don't really
1: remember. Have we talked about uh, yeah, the how they hated each other, Hoover? yeah, right? And they were, we're always gonna, like leaking about shit it, but... about
0: each other because like Hoover was like gay, Hoover was gay, yeah, and like well known uh, to be gay. And like, uh, Angleton, I think James Angleton, like, strip had pictures of him sucking off his uh, <laughs> like, male, like, um, like, uh, associate.
1: Mm. Yeah, and didn't he famously also like to wear women's clothing?
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. And he was yeah. all, and he also believed in uh phrenology, you know, skull mm-hmm. measuring.
1: <laughs> well, that's the whole thing. It's like Yeah. I think he also what well, whatever. That might be a whole yeah. other conversation. I'm sure we've got plenty to get through. Yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. funny how somebody people are just nuanced. There's a Yeah, lot, yeah. There's a yeah, somebody
0: that reactionary <clears throat> and would, conservative. You know, I mean, it makes can, a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, people uh, are are hypocrites, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so JFK would staff much of his cabinet with men connected to Dulleth, Dulles, such as the Bundy brothers, who I've talked about, McGeorge Bundy and Bill yep. Bundy. I love McGeorge Bundy. I love that yeah, name. Yeah, McGeorge Bundy is... Yeah. Dude... It's like the Dude, most that, like, Americana you're... name, like the most mid-century American name, McGeorge Bundy.
1: You've got your, like, little, mewling, newborn baby, most beautiful baby, and you're so happy...
0: And you name it, it Mick
1: George. (laughs) It's so good.
0: Yeah, it's Um, And if you look at pictures of him, he fucking looks like a Mick George Bundy. He does. Uh, Mac Bundy, yep. Much of his national security apparatus was helmed by Dulles Connected Men, and even Jackie Kennedy's social secretary, Letitia Baldridge, had been in the CIA on the psychological warfare projects. So Dulles would brazenly flaunt the fact that he had gotten his own people... Uh, all over JFK's administration and that he would continue to carry out John Foster Dulles' policy work well with earshot of Kennedy loyalists. He was already undermining JFK and then he killed Patrice Lumumba during the transition period. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so Patrice Lumumba, finally free of Belgium's brutal colonial rule, Patrice okay. Lumumba was the first democratically elected leader of the country. A CIA-backed military Wait, coup... Wait, did took- you
1: mention which country?
0: uh the congo oh okay. sorry yeah yeah. could no no call. i just want to make yeah.
1: sure because i didn't catch it but i just for consistency sorry
0: sake. <laughs> sorry you know i put uh in the heading for my notes i put the name of the country but obviously oh. i don't say those yeah so it's the congo the uh the democratic republic of the congo um although at this time i think it's just the republic of the congo maybe
1: yeah
0: <clears throat> um so the cia backed military military coup took power afterwards as Lumumba was simply too friendly with the Soviets and communists in general, despite himself not being one. Even treating communists as humans could be a death warrant from the CIA. So the Congo, it was brutally administered by Belgium for nearly a century.
1: Yeah, bad. That's actually one of the episodes i wanted to do for a long time.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Maybe that'll be my next one, that might make sense.
0: Yeah, uh, you have been wanting to, so I'm not going too much into it here. But it was King Leopold II that carved out the Congo, the Free State of the Congo, and one of the most vicious genocides and forced labor programs in human history. Men who refused to work had their hands just cut off. About 10 million people is kind of the consensus right now. Could be up to 15 or so, but a million people died due to the brutal rule by Belgium. Uh, Even after Leopold's death, the rape of the Congo continued unabated, and the major beneficiaries could be found in Brussels, London, and New York.
1: It was mostly over rubber, right?
0: It was at first rubber uh, and that kind of stuff, and then it eventually became like precious jewels and uranium. Yeah. Towards uranium. towards the end, yeah, yeah. On the day of his victory speech, the splen- the slender and bespectacled Patrice Lumumba spoke on how the colonial rule had been too uh, had been much too painful to ever be forgotten over the years. Quote filled with tears, fire and blood, during his people's struggle against quote the humiliating bondage forced upon us. Lumumba vowed to show the world what Africa was capable of when working in liberty. More than Lumumba's words, though, it was his actions in refusing to make backroom deals to sell off parts of his country to multinational corporations that sealed his fate in the West's eyes. He was incorruptible and thus would have to be removed so that the West could continue to plunder the large resources of West Africa. Lumumba explicitly stated that he wanted nothing to do with the Cold War and would not ever take sides with either the USSR or USA. However, for Dulles, neutrality really meant some, a communist subversion, and he and his cronies began plotting to remove Lumumba from power. Eisenhower, by now basically fed up with being president, <clears> said he hoped Lumumba fell into a river full of crocodiles and gave Dulles the green light to eliminate him at a National Security Council meeting in quite explicit language. No, will no one rid me of this meddlesome president?
1: <laughs> yeah, seriously. Were they uh, going to boil him first? I don't know. And then dump them to the crocodiles.
0: They did some really bad shit, though. Yeah. So the CIA hired two mercenary assassins from Europe, codenamed Q.J. Wynn and W.I. Rogue, who were notorious for their unsavory methods. Wynn had been supplied with a tube of poison toothpaste, which was concocted by Sidney Gottlieb and Ewan Cameron. Cameron came up with the idea because Lumumba's teeth were white, and in his expert opinion, this meant he must brush regularly. Truly ingenious work by the CIA and the freak Sid Gottlieb created the toxic concoction. The CIA would end up not going through with this incredible plot, as it would have been too flagrant and could irreparably harm the agency if discovered. Sidney Gottlieb had also been used in a plan to infect Lumumba with a potent virus and personally travel to the Congo with it, but this plan was scrapped like after he got there. He was apparently quite pissed. He wanted to infect him with a virus. And so the plan was to surround Lumumba's compound and let him escape, leading right to his rivals who would do the job themselves. After, his escape, after he escaped, he was in hot pursuit by his rival, the 29-year-old Colonel Joseph Mobutu. On December 1, 1960, Lumumba nearly made it to his stronghold in the Congolese heartland before Mobutu's men caught up to him and captured his wife and young son. Lumumba, who had already crossed the Sankuru River to his sanctuary in Stanleyville, rode back over the river and surrendered himself. He was brutally beaten and then dragged onto the TV bloodied and then brutally beaten again along with his young son. Now the game was in full effect. Nikita Khrushchev called for his immediate release, and JFK also did not want Lumumba harmed quite explicitly and openly. He was staunchly against this action. So Dulles and the CIA had to race against the clock to make sure Lumumba was killed. Ted Kennedy was on a fact-finding expedition for his brother in December, and when he returned, he called for the release of Lumumba at his brother's behest. The CIA activated one of its assets in the New York Times, the former Nazi aide Paul Hoffman, who had been turned into an ally spy towards the end of the war once he was done helping mass murder. It's always
1: Nazis.
0: Dude, yeah. At the New York Times, he was a leading foreign correspondent. There was no shortage of Nazi rats to activate for the agency. His writings were so obscenely anti-Lumumba and fraught with lies that his stories functioned as a psyop by U.S. intelligence against the American people. Wow. The CIA had Lumumba eventually transferred to a breakaway region of the Congo called Katanga, which was run by Lumumba's enemies on January 17th, three days before JFK's inauguration. Lumumba was beaten on the flight to Katanga, and then once he got there. Finally, he was dragged to a remote farmhouse and beaten to death by a group of men with connections to American and Belgian intelligence. The CIA kept the news of the assassination from JFK even after he was in office. Dulles personally briefed him on the Congo, but never mentioned Lumumba's death. He finally learned of the death of Patrice Lumumba a month after it happened from UN Ambassador Adlai Stevenson. The photographer Jacques Lowe, who had been hired to document Kennedy's administration, and the pictures he took of JFK when he heard of the news of Lumumba's death are some of the most iconic in American history. I guarantee most of you have probably seen it. It's the one where he's sitting there with his head in his hand on the phone. The news of Patrice Lumumba's death sent shockwaves around the world, and protests were held in India, the Soviet bloc, Japan, and all throughout the world. Of course, the American press were in victory laps and continued to degrade Lumumba and his family over the tragedy. No indignity is too far when it comes to the American press and its treatment of the third world. Colonel Mobutu would rule the country with CIA backing for 32 years under a military dictatorship that Mobutu intentionally modeled after King Leopold. And from this moment, JFK and Alan Dulles realized that they were not going to be seeing eye to eye. And what would come next would put the world at the absolute brink of annihilation over the following two years. Mm. And that's that. That's the American Utopia. are
1: not going to go to the brink?
0: Nope, that's in the future. Okay. That's in the future. Oh, man. This is the end of the American Utopia as built by Alan Dulles okay. at its zenith.
1: Wow, what a series. Yep. Dude, Patrice Lumumba. Yeah. Did you say that they dragged, they put him in front of a TV camera?
0: Yeah, they beat the shit out of him and then put him on a TV camera like, in broad, the Congo. Broadcast it to the yeah, country? Yeah. While, while they were also beating his like young son in the background.
1: Ugh. Does And does Mobutu end up becoming dictator?
0: Yeah, for 32 years. He yeah. styled himself after King Leopold.
1: Yeah, that's right. You just said that. Yep. <laughs> I just forgot if you said it was Mobutu or not. Yeah. yeah. Um, wow. Wow yep what a story yep Alan Dahls, what a fuck freak
0: yeah so yeah that's uh the five part series I started it a year ago it's long
1: yeah it has been a year huh yeah Wow. well, I loved it good job
0: thank you I'm quite proud I hope,
1: I hope that my audio isn't too difficult yeah um, if you have any questions about uh editing i'm I'm excited to.
0: Yeah, bring you on board with
1: that? Yeah, I'll out. get
0: started on that this weekend. Maybe tomorrow night after work.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's um, you know, obviously there's a learning curve, but it's uh, yeah, it's pretty simple once you get the hang of it. Yep. But I've got a few things I'll tell you off. Of. All
0: right, um, um, I do. I do want to uh, cite my sources for this episode. Uh, sure. Again, it's David Talbot's The Devil's Chessboard. Uh, it's been really the backbone of this series. Uh, it's an amazing book. I highly, highly, highly recommend mm. recommend it if you want to learn more. Uh, also, again, Killing Hope by William Blum. I've used it for many of the episodes. And then that uh, it was a newspaper article for uh, uh, the interview with uh, Francis Ford Coppola. That That's really, really great. And if you guys just search uh, Francis Ford Coppola Cuba interview, uh, you'll find that. It's, it's really, really good. It, it, I highly suggest reading that. The whole thing's got tons of tidbits.
1: Yeah, I'm probably going to do that after this episode. Yeah. Wow. Well, thanks, man.
0: Yeah yeah thank you everybody for listening um yeah we've got a lot of new new listeners a lot of new listeners lately so uh thank you for for tuning in uh we're really happy to have you here and uh if you're enjoying the show so far i will do the same thing i do at the end of all of our episodes please tell people about us we uh spread uh largely by word of mouth um you know uh so that's great uh occasionally we have uh famed authors such as Lisa Pease uh, reply to me on Twitter, and then I get a bunch of new followers and a bunch of new downloads for the podcast, so uh, that does happen occasionally, but mostly it's people people just talking to each other about us. Yeah. Um, yeah? Cool. I don't know. Anything you want to say?
1: No, my voice is, is dumb, yeah. even it after shot, this little yeah. bit of talking, so... Alright. Uh, yeah, no, thank you guys for listening in. I hope I don't sound too terrible this week. Yeah. Uh, I'm not dying, I promise.
0: Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, we, I think, uh, probably for our next episode, cause I'm not sure if we'll do one next week. Uh, but for the one after that will be a huge one. We've got a guest lined up. Some of you, uh, know them in their own podcast. Uh, and you probably know what we're going to talk about. You may have read the book it's based off of, but I'm really, really excited for that. I've got a lot of work to do before yeah. it, a lot, lot to read for that, but, uh, super excited for that episode. And uh, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. We've got some other cool things coming down the pipeline, so we're really excited. I think right now we're we're really hitting a a good stride. So yeah, thank you for
1: some time away. So yeah,
0: so thank you guys for uh, tuning in. Thanks, thank you guys for listening, and we will see you next time. We sure will. All right, see you later, buddy.